Before we pray, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we're in Luke 8, and we'll do uh, verse 40 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll move on into chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke today. So Luke 8, beginning with verse 40, after we pray. So welcome again. Uh, God bless you all, and let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for this uh, very beautiful day that you've given to us. We thank you for the gift of life itself. We thank you for eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for uh, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He arose in triumph over death. And uh, Father, you have drawn us to yourself. And we have come to know you through your son, Jesus. And we are ecstatic about the privilege of a walk with you. We are amazed at your mercy and your grace and your love for when we contemplate who we are and the things that we have done and the fact that we are all sinners, we are amazed that you have chosen to save us by grace through faith in Christ alone. So we're grateful, we're thankful, and we thank you that you give to us the privilege of coming together and to study your precious word and thank you for all that we are learning in the gospel of Luke and all that we will learn as we continue forward in the days ahead. And we just thank you for your precious, precious word and the fact that um, we have such privileges that generations before us didn't have the written word of God, our own abilities to read. And uh, father, we're so grateful. And, and so father, as we look at, Luke 8 and on into chapter 9 today, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts, that we would learn and that we would listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit as he says to each of us uniquely, this is the way, follow me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, I think what we want to do first is read the scripture. So we are in 840 through the end of the chapter, power over death and sickness. And Jesus in this eighth chapter has certainly taught uh, in ways that amaze us and then also has already shown his power and authority in the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee and the restoration of a demon-possessed man. And now in these verses, his power over death and sickness. Verse 40, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Like, like I just can see Peter. Can you see Peter saying this now, shaking his head and saying, come on, Jesus, look at all the crowd. What do you mean who touched you? Only Peter would say that. Verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, 
seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Can you imagine what a feeling she had and what a triumphant moment in her life? Verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. This is the news that he dreaded. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Um, We understand why Jesus said that. With the mobs and the crowds and, and people wanting to thrust him forward and push him on to Jerusalem to assume kingship and to throw the Romans out. So Jesus knew that his time was not yet for the crucifixion. And so he asked them not tell anybody, but you know, they did. Of course they did. That was incredible news. And they wanted to share it, what they had seen and heard. Let's think about this passage for a moment. Can, can you identify with Jairus as a parent? I suspect you can, even if you never had a child who faced death, you still had a child that had sickness and you understand your concern as a dad or a mom, knowing that your child is about to die. Um, and indeed she does die. And, and so Jairus is on his way. He comes and like others had done, he pleaded with Jesus. Now he's a synagogue ruler and you know how those guys felt about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Maybe just a few days before, Jairus had been one of those who was critical about Jesus. Maybe even plotting, what can we do to do away with this man? But when his own daughter faced death, he didn't go to the other synagogue rulers. He came to Jesus. He humbled himself before Jesus and pleaded with Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter. And, And there's a sense of urgency because she is near death and he is fearful that if they don't hurry and get back to his house, uh, his daughter will die. And of course, as we know, that is exactly what happened. So as he talks to Jesus, we know the crowds are, well, the text says they're about to crush him. The crowds are big. Jesus is known and people are drawn to him and they want to see a miracle. Yeah. 
Maybe they want to hear his teaching, but what they really want is to see a miracle. Jesus himself voiced that numerous times in, in the Gospels. So as they're moving way too slowly for Jairus' thinking, they're moving toward his house. And the scripture tells us that a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, we, we know she probably needed surgery, um, perhaps hysterectomy. We, we know she needed surgery and no one had been able to help her. One of the other gospels said doctors had tried and not been able to do anything. And so this was a, a horribly difficult situation for her. And, um, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean in, in Israel because of her health issue. And when you're ceremonially unclean and you can't worship with others in the synagogue and the privileges of, of being Jewish are denied to you, it is a horrible, horrible fate. And so this woman is desperate to get to Jesus. And so through the mob, through the crowd, she manages to inch her way close enough to touch, as it were, the hem of his garment. Now, Peter was right in that there were a lot of people pressing, and she was not the only person that touched Jesus. You can you can be absolutely certain about that. However, her touch was different. Her touch was one of faith with a desire to be healed, whereas some of the others who were touching Jesus were just trying to get close and, and perhaps to be able to leave and say, hey, I touched him. But this woman touched him with a heart and a soul of faith, believing that that's all she needed to do. If I can just touch him, then I'll be healed. She had no expectation of talking with him. She had no expectation that he would even notice that she touched him, that she touched him. And so she was astonished when Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? She was like, oh, my goodness, I hope nobody noticed. But Jesus was insistent. Now, it's not, you know, he knew who it was, but she needed to speak up and say, yes, it was, it was me, because here was a time for everybody to know exactly what had happened. Now, if she had been able to sneak away, Jesus could have said, hey, somebody just touched me and got healed, but people look around and say, well, who was it? Where's the proof? And so Jesus stops and asks that question, who Touched me. Um, I think it's a bit famous song. He touched me and I've never been the same. Oh, she was never the same after she touched Jesus. And I, I would ask when you reached out and touched Jesus, not physically, of course, but spiritually, wouldn't you say I've never been the same? When I came to know him as my savior and Lord, your life was changed from the inside out. And since that day, you have never been the same. And aren't you grateful? Well, uh, she touched Jesus with a touch of faith. And no one wanted to admit, she didn't want to admit that she was the one who touched him. And uh, Peter speaks as he is wont to do. Um, now, we know Jesus knew, but finally the woman admits it. She sees she's not going to be able to wiggle out of this. And she says it was me. And she fell before Jesus in humility with a physical demonstration of the faith that was in her heart. And I like that physical demonstration of the faith that was in her heart because 
we want to be certain that we demonstrate the faith that's in our heart, physically, outwardly, openly, in whatever way Jesus gives us to do that. Serving others, loving others, encouraging others. Um, Those are important ways for us to show outwardly what's happened in our lives. I think uh, Jesus said, if you know me, you're going to bear fruit. Okay, that's sort of what we're talking about here. You know Jesus, let's show outwardly and openly what happened since he touched you. So she fell at his feet in humility, and uh, the rest of that is history. But, oh, by the way, there is another part to this story. So when all of this is over, and once again, Jesus and the crowd begin to move toward Jairus's house, we think back, what did Jairus think? about all of this. Well, goodness gracious, the poor man was probably tormented thinking, oh my, this is the worst thing in the world that we we had to stop and take time to deal with this situation. And the mob is already hindering our progress. I want Jesus to get to my house before it's too late. But then the word comes. And in Jairus' thinking, It is too late. Your daughter is dead. And whoever brought the news is even so, quote, helpful, unquote, enough to say, don't bother Jesus any longer. There's no need for him to come. It's too late. She's dead. So whoever that was that brought the message didn't really know who he was talking about, did he? Not really. To say that it's too late with Jesus is never a true statement. And so Jesus then responds so that Jairus has hope. He says to him, believe and she will be healed. And so Jesus went with, continued with Jairus, getting to his house, taking the so-called inner circle of Peter, John, and James, and going into the child's room and in one of the most um, electric moments, if I may say that, one of the most electric moments in all of Scripture, Jesus raises her to life. Now, when Jesus said she's asleep, did he mean that in the way in which you and I think about sleep? No, he meant she is experiencing the, the sleep of death. Yes, she is dead, but I'm about to change that. And, of course, there was the scorn of the crowd who thought, who is this guy and why would he say something like that? And they scorned him because they knew she was dead. I mean, she was as dead as dead could be. And don't think because it's 2,000 years ago, they didn't know how to spot a dead person. They certainly did. And maybe better than we do because uh, we aren't often around it like they were then. And so Jesus encourages Jairus, tells the crowd, stop your wailing, uh, which according to custom would have been loud and uh, often very insincere. I'm sure there were some mourners there who were absolutely devastated by the the death of this little girl, but there were also people then who were professional mourners Some of them may have been there whose 
whether they even knew the child or not, their position was we comfort the family by our wailing and our mourning, our crying, if, if that's supposed to bring any comfort to, to someone. And it's noisy and it's distracting, and Jesus says, stop it. Of course, they scorn him. What does he know? But Jesus took the little girl by her hand. Would you like to be a fly on the wall? Jesus took her by the hand and raised her to life. My child, a tender term, tender term, my child, powerful term, get up. Tender, my child, powerful, get up. And she immediately sat up. I mean, it was not like it took 15 or 20 minutes to resuscitate her. Immediately, she got up, bouncing up like only a child could do. And can you imagine the astonishment of Jairus and his wife, the mother of that child? Now, everybody's about to be astonished when they emerge from that room and that little girl's alive. Oh, my goodness. What a stunning moment it was. One of the things I love best about scripture. um, Yeah, reading the words, but also as I read, thinking about. Looked like. If I could have been there to see it. And I love thinking about that. I don't know if my thinking's accurate or not. It may be totally different scene than what I'm thinking, but I'm, I'm just thinking about it. And I hope you do that too, as you process scripture, particularly in events like this, you know, it's one thing if Jesus is teaching, but it's another thing to try to picture yourself as being there and seeing the miracles, uh, the power of our Lord. So Jesus raises her up. We can only imagine how the little girl's parents react. I mean, you know, at first they probably gasped for air. But then as soon as they had done that, I'm I'm confident that they embraced her and, and they wept. And the people who were outside hearing the weeping, well, they may have been jumping to the conclusion, well, he tried to do something and he couldn't. And mom and dad are weeping now. Oh, no, it wasn't what it was. Maybe they began to shout. Maybe they shouted, she's alive, so the people outside would know. I, I don't know. We'll have to ask them when we get to heaven. What was it like, Jairus? Tell us about it. But regardless, when they emerged from that room with that little girl, what an incredible moment and a testimony of the power and authority of Jesus. But also in that power and authority, we see his tenderness and his gracious love. And, and I love the fact that he says to the family, feed her. <laughs> She's hungry. Give her something to eat. You know, she's been battling a fever. There's no telling how long it had been since she had a meal. And so he says, feed her. And then tells everybody, now don't go off telling this story. My time's not yet, but, you know, could you have kept quiet? <laughs> Probably not. Um, you know, sometimes I can't even keep quiet about the weather. So if I saw a resurrection, I'm going to, man, I'm going to tell all about it. So that, that's what happened. But, but, Back to the main thing, the faith of Jairus and the power and the authority of Jesus over sickness is demonstrated with the woman and over death itself. Its greatest demonstration of power is his authority over 
death itself. The ultimate demonstration of that is coming soon in his own resurrection from the dead. For now, uh, we, we know what's coming. They didn't. We know because we've read the Bible, but they didn't know what was coming, but they were catching a snapshot of what was yet to come in the power and authority of Jesus over death itself. And it's because of Jesus' power over death itself and that in the resurrection, you and I have the promise of life eternal. Oh, yeah, physically we're going to die. If Jesus tarries in his return, we're going to die physically. Um, immediately into the presence of the Lord to await a day when our own bodies will be resurrected, spirit and body together again. Isn't it great to be a Christian? Um, it is just absolutely awesome what we have awaiting us. You know, if, if you sit around, there's a lot of bad things going on right now. Oh, my gracious. Yeah, COVID upheaval in our nation, uh, just a lot of wretchedness going on right now. And it, man, I'll tell you, if you let yourself go to seed on that, then you're going to spend most of your days in utter misery. But don't do that. In Christ, there's joy. And in Christ, we know the best is yet to be. So, yeah, we, we're going to go through tough times. We're, we, we're going to suffer. Bible says we will. Why would we think otherwise? But just don't despair. There's a great conclusion to the story coming. And in between now and then, know that Jesus will be with you every step of the way. So um, as we draw this lesson, this demonstration of power to a close and move on to chapter nine, remember that faith in Christ makes the sin sick sinner well. Now that's a sin sick sinner. Try saying that 25 times. But faith in Christ makes the sin sick sinner well. That's you and me. Lost in sin, sick, literally dead without hope. But faith in Christ makes us well. And faith in Christ raises the person dead in sin to newness of life. We picture that in baptism. Uh, Different pastors say different things when they baptize individuals. But you probably by now know I say buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. And that's exciting, an exciting picture of the spiritual reality that is true for every person who is in Jesus. Well, is it possible to have a better chapter than Luke chapter 8? Hmm, let me think about that a minute. It, there, it may be, and maybe Luke chapter 9 is it. What do you think? you think we should explore it and find out? Let's do that. So let's go to the first part. Uh, we'll read the first nine verses of Luke chapter 9. Uh, I've put the words sending out the 12. So here we go. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. 
and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, that's John the Baptist, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So let's think about those um, first nine verses of of the ninth chapter. Now, the 12 are generally what we we normally would call those who were to be called later apostles. So not all of his disciples were sent out, but it was the 12 that we're most accustomed to thinking of. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew, so on. And um, so he's sending them out, and he gave them two things as he sent them out, power and authority, power and authority, power over demons, authority over demons, and over sickness. And so he tells them to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of God, to say, he's here, the Messiah's here, and it's Jesus. Now, the demons being cast out and the sick people being healed was an important part of Jesus' ministry. For these 12, it was a demonstration of the power and authority of Jesus that he had entrusted to them and also a way of attracting and drawing people to come and hear the proclamation that the kingdom of God has come. So someone walks into town and says, the kingdom of God has come. And everybody looks and says, "Uh, just another nut. But when that one who's proclaiming the kingdom of God is able to cast out demons or heal the sick, then the message draws a hearing. Now, that's not to say that things are the same today. In fact, I would submit to you this passage uh, is not normative for the rest of history because Jesus is not saying to us in the 21st century, go on a mission trip without a suitcase. Understand? You know, he said, don't take a cloak, don't take extra clothes. So he's not therefore leaping forward to 2020 and saying, if you go on a mission trip this year, don't take a suitcase. (laughs) Not saying that. Uh, He's not even saying to you and me, go heal the sick and raise the dead. That or cast out demons. That was what he was in powering the disciples to do this side of the cross we have the power of the holy spirit in us and we have the clear message of scripture to proclaim to those who will listen now um, he said go in my authority go in my power and watch what i will do so you get what jesus is saying peter don't think it's your power it's my power working through you. James, Andrew, John, 
when you argued with your brother about who would be our greatest in, in the kingdom, don't, don't go there. Don't think when you cast a demon out that it's because you're somebody. It's because of my power and my authority working through you. So when you go, watch what I will do. Get to know people. Knock on doors. If someone says to you, hey, in good Middle Eastern hospitality, come and stay with me. Now, I'll house all 12 of you or 13 of you. Uh, or maybe, uh, all 12 of you, because Jesus wouldn't have been with them. I'll, ha- I'll, ha- I'll house all 12 of you. Or I got a neighbor. I'll take six. He'll take six. Anyway, whatever, go in the house, stay with them as long as you need to be in that particular community. And if there are those who reject my word, who reject me, then go ahead and leave town, shake the dust off your feet. Now, there's still a group who does that even today, maybe not as much today as they did when I was a child, but um, I still have this vivid memory of when I was a little boy of the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to our house, knocking on the door. And uh, my dad was not, um, I don't want to honor the memory of my dad, but he, he was not exactly overly warm toward them. And uh, told them we were not interested in what they had to, to say or sell and uh, to leave. And I'm standing behind him watching, not knowing who these people are and wondering why my daddy is not nicer to them. And remember them go out in the yard and turning around and looking at my dad with frowns on their faces and saying, we shake the dust off our feet. They stood there and jiggled their legs up in the air and shook the dust off their feet. Well, they take that from this passage of scripture. To say, if you don't believe what we're peddling, we'll shake the dust off our feet. Now, they honestly, they don't do that as much as they used to anymore. I think they've learned that's not very well received by people you're trying to convert. And that's not something I would encourage you to practice either physically, outwardly, openly. If someone rejects the message of the gospel that you share with them, you'd like to have another opportunity. So don't stand there and wiggle and shake the dust off your feet. But. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do. Figuratively, figuratively or literally, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Because the truth of the matter is there are other people who will listen. And if this house or this group doesn't want to listen to you, then go to the next house. Because there may be somebody there who is open to the gospel. But the main thing to remember is they are going in the power of Jesus. And they were able to do Great things. They set out. They went from village to village proclaiming the good news, verse 6, and healing people everywhere. Amazing. It's a sign of what is yet to come in the power and authority of Jesus in his disciples. Now, Herod is brought up here, verse 7. This particular Herod is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod Antipas and Two of his brothers rule the land at this point in time. One third each, Herod the Great, left them, divided the land up and gave one third to Herod Antipas and one third to his two brothers. And this particular Herod ruled for a long time, 4 BC to 39 AD, 43 years he was in charge. 
he ruled Galilee and Perea. You know where Galilee is. Look on a map. You'll see Perea, Bible map. And uh, basically, he covered most of Jesus, uh, he, he, a lot of the territory where Jesus ministered, and he ruled all of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, um, that's so foreign to us. We have a system where a president may serve eight years, but that's it. Now, I know that's changed. Some of you are old enough to remember Roosevelt served uh, 12 years, but then our, our laws changed where a president couldn't do that anymore. But compare eight years to 43 years. And uh, especially if you got a, a despot like Herod Antipas, that's, that's a long time. And so he, he was the ruler, but he had heard about Jesus. Well, of course he had. I guarantee you the kind of despot that Herod Antipas was, he kept up with what was going on in his kingdom because he ruled with an iron fist and he heard about Jesus. He didn't miss anything. And he heard about the mass healings. He heard about the dead raised. He heard about the miracles. He heard about um, the authority over demons. And he was perplexed, perplexed at um, the, the, the claims of authority that, that Jesus had. And he paid very, very close attention to that. But he paid especially close attention to what the crowds were saying because Above all else, he, his desire was to control the people, to control the crowds. Now, crowds are seldom right. Uh, mobs are seldom correct, a la 2020, uh, okay? Mobs are seldom correct. Crowds are seldom accurate. And so Herod was listening to what people were, were saying, and they were saying, must be John the Baptist, raised from the dead, or if that's not right, it must be Elijah. If that's not right, it must be one of the prophets. And they were wrong. It wasn't any of those three. But that's what they were saying. And so Herod somewhat coldly and brusquely says, well, I know it's not John because I beheaded him. But we'll put that one to rest. It's not John the Baptist re- be, uh, resurrected. I don't believe in a resurrection, and I beheaded him. He's dead, and he's dead. But who is this? Who is this one named Jesus who is doing all these things? And when it says he tried to see him, understand that he didn't try very hard. So this is a figure of speech that means basically that Herod Antipas was inquisitive, wanted to be sure that things weren't going to get out of control in his kingdom. But don't be confused by thinking he tried to find Jesus and couldn't find him. Uh, Jesus was not that hard to find. And when you're Herod and Tepas and you want to see somebody, you're going to get to see him. Okay? It's not like Jesus was on the run. He heard Herod was coming and he went up in the hills to hide. No, that, that was not it. Um, Herod could have seen Jesus if he really wanted to. But here is the cold, hard fact of the matter. He was satisfied with being somewhat perplexed, but did not feel threatened. So he didn't press to answer the question that he himself asked, who is this? Now, I would submit to you with an aha moment that this is the question that every person must answer. Who is Jesus? 
I wished Herod had pressed it. I wish he had gone and seen him face to face. Who knows what might have happened in his heart. But that's the question you have to answer, and I trust already have. And every person must answer, who is Jesus? What am I going to do with him? What am I going to do with him? And so in this passage, the disciples discover for themselves a power and authority given to them by Jesus that is a foretaste of much of what's going to happen after the resurrection and Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. But they don't know that yet because they don't, they don't have a clue what Jesus has been talking about when he says, I'm going to be crucified. They don't, they don't understand that yet. They will, but they don't yet. So let's move on. And I think we can get this miracle covered before we have to stop for today. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, you know, it's really more than 5,000. Okay. We'll talk about that in a minute. So here's verse 10. When the apostles returned, They reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Now, I I love the fact that they got back, they reported to Jesus, and he takes them on a, a kind of a withdrawal retreat to a little place. Bethsaida was little. And they talked along the way. I think we might call this discipleship, mentorship. As they said, well, here's what happened here, and here's what happened there, and Jesus shares with them some pretty special moments, I'm sure. But they withdraw by themselves, so the mobs are not with them at the moment. So teaching moments. But the ever-present crowds learned about it, and they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. So he gets to Bethsaida. Crowds catch up. He begins to teach. He rejoices that they're there, and he teaches them and heals. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. Um, May I give the Davis translation? And I hope I'm not really offline here. Jesus, we are starving to death. Please send them away so we can eat. Am I being too harsh on the disciples? Probably not. But send them home. There's nothing to eat here. This is a little town. Uh, What are are they going to do? It's getting late. Not safe to travel after dark. So send them home. And then Jesus comes back and says, you give them something to eat. What a great moment. I I, I can't help but think when Jesus said that, that he smiled. Don't see Jesus as a zombie. He was not. I know some movies picture him as a zombie-like figure. He's not. Children don't love zombies, and the children love Jesus. So he had a pleasant demeanor. And when he said this, I I think he smiled at the disciples and said, you give them something to eat. Well, my, my goodness, they answered. We have only five loaves and little loaves of bread and two little fish. That's all. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. And here's where it said, and about 5,000 men were there. 
So add the women and children and you got a big crowd. So there's no store in Bethsaida that has enough food on, on the shelves, so to speak, to feed these people. And, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Don't you love the organization of Jesus? I mean, he's perfect in every way. I wonder what the disciples were thinking. Why are we doing this? We don't have any food. Why is, why is he bunching them together in groups of 50? What, what's going on here? By this point, they should have known something's up. So they did what they were told, verse 15, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Now, again, what are the disciples thinking? Well, maybe, um, maybe Judas the zealot was thinking, we've only got five loaves, two fish. We'll give those out in the first five people and then we're going to have a fight on our hands and, and I better be right. I better be ready to defend Jesus. I know the scripture doesn't say that, but I'm trying to think what, what were they thinking? Well, then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, five loaves, two fish, hand them out. What happened? They all ate. All 10, 15,000. I remember there. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And that's the end of the story. Now, I enjoy eating. I do. I just love to eat. I admit it. Maybe some of you would say, yep, me too, Pastor. Um, This whole story is utterly amazing. Five loaves, two fish, fed thousands. 12 baskets left over. I don't know if each disciple got to take a basket home. I don't know how that worked. 12 baskets left over. And it says everybody was satisfied. So you know they're not just giving out a little bitty piece of bread and and a little portion of a fish. That wouldn't have satisfied people. They were full. They were satisfied. Oh, my goodness. I love this story. So, um, I think we want to be sure we understand Jesus supplies and satisfies. And we apply that to ourselves. He supplies everything we need. He satisfies our soul. He saves us. And we're satisfied with Jesus. So, Bethsaida, the crowds follow. More miracles. Late the day. No lunch. The disciples say, send them home. Jesus says, you guys take care of it. They were incredulous, and the rest is history. So Jesus blessed, and in an amazing act of power, everybody had enough to eat, and they were satisfied. And there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, I've had people say, "Uh, Pastor, were these those little kind of like kipper fish that you eat raw? Or were these cooked fish? that somebody brought, what were they? I, I don't know. I have no problem with, with them being cooked fish that, that a little boy brought. Why would I have a problem with that? And that the multiplication was cooked fish also. I don't know. 
we'll get to find that out when we get to heaven also. What would be the problem with that? Some people say, well, it must have been those little raw fish because there was no place to cook them. Okay, if you want to go there, then how did they cook the bread? So the bread was cooked and it multiplied. The fish was cooked and it was multiplied. Not a problem for Jesus, not a problem for me, and obviously not a problem for the crowd because they ate and they were satisfied. I think about um, Isaiah 55 came to mind as uh, I concluded this little miracle of Jesus. In the first two verses of Isaiah 55, it says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend no money? Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Now I thought about that because that's what the Messiah provides for us. He says, come to me, drink from the water of life. Come to me and eat that which satisfies, that which I give. The world gives will not satisfy you. What I give will satisfy you. So don't throw everything you have away in the pursuit of nothingness, but come and follow me. Drink the water of life, eat the bread of life, and you will find satisfaction for your soul. And that's what we find in Jesus. He can supply and he can satisfy. One of the greatest witnesses that you can give is to say to others, I am totally satisfied with Jesus. He's all I need. Because there are a lot of people who are hungry. Yeah, physically, but I'm talking spiritually. People are hungry spiritually. And to have someone say to them, I found the answer to that hunger in my soul. And it is a person and his name is Jesus. And you can have a personal relationship with him. What great news. What incredible news. All right, we will stop. Next uh, next time, we'll pick up with the 18th verse of chapter 9 and cons- uh, head on through. the. We're going to see miracles again. Um, oh, what a great chapter. We get the, we also get the transfiguration in here. So uh, I'm excited about the rest of chapter 9. So God bless you all. I love you and appreciate you. So let's pray. And then if you want to hang on, you can do that. Talk to one another. Um, And I pray that the rest of your day will be truly blessed. Father, thank you that in Jesus we find everything we need. We are satisfied with Jesus. Thank you. Bless us now as we continue uh, our responsibilities of this day. In your beautiful and majestic name I pray. Amen. All right. God bless you. You can unmute or Vicky will unmute you and... Have a way at it. God bless y'all.